Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. We're just looking forward to having people come out. It's a large parcel, 13 acres of land. We think that you can certainly social distance. We'll discuss J.C. Penney Farms in Florida, Founded by J.C. Penney in 1925, Penney Farms envisioned a community of small farmers who would practice modern scientific agriculture. And Miami's historic Deauville Hotel is one step closer to being demolished. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic are the musical headliners for the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, presented by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. From its beginning 33 years ago, the Zora Festival has been a multifaceted event with educational presentations and discussions, visual and performing arts components, and a three-day outdoor festival. While particular themes and topics change and specific offerings have adapted and evolved, the overall vision for this event, the essential concept of what the festival should be, has remained the same. Leading the team of presenters from day one, more than three decades ago, is N.Y. Nefiri. The goals of the festival remain to celebrate the life and work of the 20th century charismatic writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston to celebrate the historic significance of her hometown, which she has popularized around the world as the, quote, oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States, unquote, and to celebrate the cultural contributions of people of African ancestry to the United States and to the world. And what that means is just a wonderful opportunity year in and year out cycle in and cycle out to explore and engage our visitors, our guests, our friends, our interested parties, scholars, um, school children. We like to say that we attempt to program from the very, very young to the very, very old. And so, yes, you're right, within the context of those three goals, as Zora Neale Hurston might say, paraphrasing her, the world is our oyster. When most people think of the Zora Festival, it's probably the outdoor portion of the event that comes to mind first, with Education Day on Friday, January 28th, 
Family Day on Saturday, January 29th, and a day of reflection on Sunday, January 30th. Longtime festival goers need to be aware of a new location for the outdoor portion of the event this year. Absolutely. We are at what we are calling the Preserve in Eatonville. This is a, a natural habitat that is hiding in plain sight. In other words, as you drive west on West Kennedy Boulevard, leaving Eatonville, you might not expect, you might not expect to see at the intersection of West Kennedy and Lake Destiny Road and moving for about 13 acres west, there's a wooded area. But when you go into that wooded area, it's really, it's awe-inspiring because you see how the nature is represented. Uh, and I would uh, urge anyone who uh, has an opportunity to visit our website, zorafestival.org, and click on the vending button simply to get the overview of what that preserve looks like. Uh, you'll just see a kind of natural segmenting of the space. And, and we have followed that. We've actually followed that pattern in terms of where to place the, the children's activity, where to place the international food court, where to place the international marketplace, where to place the author's row. In addition, the preserve at Eatonville is a location for what was then called Tuxedo Junction, which is a place where Zora Neale Hurston actually was a, was a small dwelling there. And, and from time to time, she lived there and actually did some of her writing. So it's really, as I say, hidden in plain sight. Afrofuturism has been a prominent theme of recent Zora festivals, and there is a two-day Afrofuturism conference this year on Thursday, January 27th and Friday, January 28th. While it might be a stretch to directly connect Zora Neale Hurston with the largely science fiction and fantasy-based Afrofuturism, there is common ground there in a vision of what is possible for African Americans. And why theory? And you're exactly on point when you talk about Zora Neale Hurston and the possibilities. Now, I have learned this in working around and with the Afrofuturists. And in fact, I even asked the question about why so many of these scholars embrace Zora Neale Hurston. It's, it's quite something to see but it's about the possibilities. It's about the fact that she had that mindset, that she had that creative. It's about the possibilities for people of African ancestry. And, and, and that's exactly right. Now, I should say that we have never felt that we were constrained or confined to only do themes where Zora Neale Hurston was the predominant, uh, how would you say, presence or factor or scholarship. We, we've named the festival in her honor, but there have been any number of cycles where she's not been in the forefront. The Afrofuturism cycle of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began in 2020 and continues through 2024. The Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts in Eatonville has just opened a year-long exhibit called Black Kirby, an Afrofuturist Vision. It's a series of graphic posters that is absolutely um, not only awe-inspiring, but uh, very engaging. We think that young people, people who are also young at heart, will really find um, this exhibition quite, quite compelling. 
And um, again, John Jennings and Stacy Robinson, who are the artists, uh, and Julian Chambers, who has served as a curator of the exhibition. It's a magnificent vision. We have repainted the uh, museum walls to uh, reflect what is happening on the walls. So it's very, very exciting to have this as a, a year-long uh, exhibition. George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, who helped pioneer the Afrofuturism aesthetic, will be performing at the Zora Festival on Saturday, January 29th. In 1997, the group was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and in 2019 earned the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And why theory? We just had a meeting last evening and the, the marketing team was reporting to the uh, PEC Board of Directors. And over the last 30 days, the demographic that has... <laughs> The, the demographic that has jumped, I believe they said 40% was is 65 plus. Okay? And, and, and we smile because it's George Clinton, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. We were told that we hit it out of the park when we were able to secure him because you're exactly right. It just lines up perfectly with the, the Afrofuturist theme. Other aspects of the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities include the Africa-American Women's Economic Forum and Trade Expo, which helps to develop entrepreneurship, and cultural heritage tours of historic sites in Eatonville. As we look to utilize the past to prepare for the future, this whole business of how you see yourselves, how you can make certain that the vibrancy and the power of a, a community such as Eatonville, a historic black town, how we can uh, move into, move through the 21st century and into centuries subsequent, holding on to what is the essence of that town, what represents what we call the Eatonville Renaissance. And I, I can say to you as someone who works in the field and as an American patriot, I feel that Eatonville provides an opportunity for America to reimagine herself as a place in the world where everything is possible in terms of your individual initiative. With COVID still a concern, the Zora Festival is working to provide as safe an experience as possible. We're doing everything that we possibly can to be certain that we are providing a safe environment. There will be sanitizers. And even as we're at the outdoor festival, you know, and that hopefully is an environment that is more likely to be safe than indoors if we're going to have that kind of threat. Uh, we're just uh, looking forward to having people come out. It's a large parcel, 13 acres of land. We think that you can certainly social distance well. And of course, I should say that all of this you can find at ZoraFestival.org. N.Y. Nathiri is executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, presenters of the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. For more information about the life and career of Zora Neale Hurston, go to myfloridahistory.org and find Florida Frontiers Television Episode 6, The Lost Years of Zora Neale Hurston. That's myfloridahistory.org. Every time it rains, it rains, and it's from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, most people recognize the name J.C. Penny from the department store chain he created, but he was also a part of Florida's agricultural history. He was indeed. Books on Florida agricultural history are rare, while many authors acknowledge the role of agriculture in other aspects of Florida history, few develop agriculture as the central theme. That's somewhat surprising since Florida has such a rich and diverse agricultural history, ranging from the crops and farming methods of indigenous people to small farm production, to horticulture and ranching, to monoculture in the production of citrus, cotton, rice, and sugar. One area of interest is the involvement of nationally known entrepreneurs and industrialists in the creation of experimental farms in Florida during the period 1900 to 1940. The Penny Farms in Clay County is an example. Founded by J.C. Penney in 1925, Penney Farms envisioned a community of small farmers who would practice modern scientific agriculture. They would have access to a support system that provided them with knowledge, machinery, and marketing to make farming successful. Enthusiastically supported by academics and scientists, social scientists and farmers, the experiment was launched with great success in 1925, but it quickly ran into the realities of modern industrial agricultural and global markets. J.C. Penney was already a household name as one of the nation's most successful department store magnates when he first broached the idea of Penny Farms. As idealistic as his vision seemed, his idea was not based on romantic views of agriculture. Penny had grown up on a hard-scrabble Missouri farm and knew firsthand the difficulties of agricultural life. His college-educated father taught him the value of hard work and the importance of living life according to the golden rule. These ideas were reinforced when Penny went to work at a local department store. In 1902, at age 26, Penny, who suffered from tuberculosis like his father, was sent to Wyoming for his health and to open a new store in the tiny sheep ranching and mining town of Kimmermer. Twelve years later, he had stores in 60 locations. By 1930, he had stores in more than 1,400 locations. But according to David Delbert Kruger's recent biography, J.C. Penney, The Man, The Store, and American Agriculture, Penny never lost his interest in farmers and farming. For Penny, agricultural development was not a hobby, but an enduring desire to apply the golden rule to farming. And J.C. Penney acquired farmland in several states, but Florida was one of them, right? Yes. 
When Penny purchased the 120,000 acres of farm and woodlands from the failing Florida Farms and Industries in 1924, he acquired more than undeveloped land. The company had constructed a dairy, a cannery, a poultry plant, a sugarcane farm, a mill, and rail lines on the property. Penny used his funding to create an agricultural colony of potentially 6,000 families. Although he never realized this dream, he did attract farmers from Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee to take up his offer to live rent-free for the first year on 20-acre farms. Penny provided all the equipment needed, plus seeds, feed, and fertilizer at nominal cost. He did not accept the impoverished as colonists, but encouraged farmers with reputations for hard work and high morals to apply. According to Penny, the men whom we choose to make their homes in this community must have previously proven themselves to be industrious, thrifty, sober, God-fearing, and home-loving. He did not accept drinkers or smokers. In addition to attracting colonists, Penny brought men with agricultural science expertise to the farm to staff his Institute of Applied Agriculture. The institute was designed to educate future farmers and ranchers and provide agricultural services, including soil analysis, seed testing, planting guidance, and water management on site. The institute was closely associated with the University of Florida. The dairy operation established at Penny Farms became Foremost Dairies, one of the largest cooperative dairies in the nation. Workers at Penny Farms extracted turpentine from the pine forests on the property and maintained a herd of 3,000 beef cattle. Non-farming employees worked at Penny's dairy, ornamental greenhouse, or canning factories. According to Kruger, for the most of the later 1920s, Penny's Farms was able to provide the ideal of rural living that Penny envisioned for the area, while progressively giving residents their own autonomy, along with the complete array of retail stores, a barber shop, two gas stations, a repair garage, and hotel for visitors to the farm, a school educated farmers' children. But the success of Penny Farms didn't extend into the 1930s, though. No. By the end of the decade, it was clear that Penny Farms was in trouble. Kruger cites several causes for the downturn. The cost in money and labor for the construction of a retirement community at Penny Farms. The availability of paid employment in constructing and staffing new facilities caused farmers to scale back their production. And the usual Florida problems of climate, pests, and soil conditions combined to doom the project. By the end of 1932, Penny's financial losses forced him to sell off most of the 120,000 acres and concentrate on the most profitable aspects of the farm, the dairy and beef cattle. Penny identified the problem. We found out through bitter experience that we went at things too fast without effective preparation, a mistake that is not uncommon when men rely too confidently on the authority of money. Penny sold off the last of his holdings in Penny Farms in 1945. Although historians question Penny's motives in creating the farm, placing him in the same category as other wealthy investors in agriculture, like Henry Ford, Kruger maintains that he genuinely wanted to improve farm life for small producers. Whatever his motives, 
Penny's investment certainly offered an interesting alternative to American farming as it rapidly moved from small farm production to large-scale, highly capitalized agriculture. Another fascinating topic. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you. This is Florida Frontiers. Last week, the owners of the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach submitted a report to the city of Miami Beach, which says the building has irreparable structural damage. The city is expected to approve plans to demolish the historic landmark. Holly Baker has this look at the Deauville Hotel. The Deauville Beach Resort in Miami Beach was designed by Melvin Grossman and built in 1957. Located at 6701 Collins Avenue, the all-inclusive resort featured a large swimming pool, a beauty salon, restaurants, shops, a radio station, and an ice skating rink. The Miami modernist-style hotel attracted a lot of big-name celebrities, such as Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Elvis Presley, Sammy Davis Jr., and Jerry Lewis. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy also stayed at the Deauville and gave a speech there to the Young Democrats. But what really put the hotel on the map was the 1964 Beatles performance on The Ed Sullivan Show, taped in the Deauville's Napoleon Ballroom on February 16, 1964. The Beatles, an up-and-coming music group from Liverpool, England, were not well known in America yet. More than 70 million viewers tuned in, and America fell in love with the Fab Four. Ladies and gentlemen, here are four of the nicest youngsters we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles! Bring them on The historic Deauville brought Beatlemania to Miami Beach and helped to launch the Beatles' career. Today, the once glamorous building sits crumbling and virtually forgotten. Over the years, the hotel fell into disrepair and was finally closed in 2017 after a small electrical fire. Florida native Gary McKechnie is a writer, speaker, and a lifelong Beatles fan. He's on a mission to save the Deauville. My grandmother lived in Miami Beach, so I would go down there. And when I started getting into the Beatles way back, almost 50 years ago now, when I was old enough to find out where the hotel was, it's like, oh, the Beatles walked through those doors and the Beatles played in that room. It was, it was just fascinating for me that this place existed. I mean, and of all the hotels in Miami, Miami Beach, and there are some wonderful ones. I used to, uh, I'm a travel writer, so I have written about Miami for decades, that's the one that they chose. If you're not a Beatles fan, you might not appreciate its importance. But if you are a Beatles fan, then it's like, this has something that none of these other hotels in Miami have. This is something that you can't replicate. There will never be another group like the Beatles. And the, the fact that they stayed there and it has that connection to history, I, I think that's a good case for saving this historic hotel. 
Bob Keeling is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and author. He's currently writing a book about the Beatles and their time in Florida in 1964. Like Gary McKechnie, Bob Keeling is passionate about saving the Deauville. It's an incredibly historic place. JFK was there as sitting president. Judy Garland, the Supremes. I mean, just all of these great acts. Sinatra. And then you bring in the Beatles live on Ed Sullivan before 70 million people. And, and as a historic preservationist who's been lucky to co-found three historic landmarks already here in Florida, mostly kind of in this pop culture vein, I, I'm just incredulous to see the, the state of disrepair that it's in. To their credit, the city of Miami Beach is trying to do something about it and not let it waste away. But right now, it's basically a high-end flop house for transients. And the place is falling apart by attrition bit by bit. And we just can't allow that to happen. This should have been declared an historic landmark years ago. And, you know, from my perspective as a historic preservationist, we got to do all we can to save it. That's part of this mission of, of writing the book would be drawing attention to this incredibly historic place. The Deauville once symbolized the glamour and excitement of Miami. With a little help, the hotel could be brought back to life again. Bob Keeling. You know, that stage is still there where the Beatles were on Sullivan. It's still there. It's still in the ballroom of the hotel that's falling apart day by day. I really hope that something can be done about the Deauville Hotel. The notion of knocking it down and, you know, putting up some sign or something to me is a lousy idea. I think we have the chance to save it. And, and it's obviously much bigger than me, but the fact that we have that incredibly historic stage sitting there forgotten. You know, you think about the Ed Sullivan Theater where the Beatles played the first time. My God, it's a venerable landmark. And the Deauville is forgotten. And uh, I, I hope we do something about it before it's too late. Because Florida played a critical part in the Beatles year where everything just exploded for them. And it's time we recognize that we do something about it. And the first step in, in that process, as far as I'm concerned, is save the Deauville. Hashtag save the Deauville. For nearly a decade, Gary McKechnie has been campaigning to save the Deauville and to place a historical marker there. His original vision was for the hotel to be restored by 2014, in time for the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' historic Ed Sullivan performance in the Deauville Ballroom. Despite the efforts of Gary McKechnie, Bob Keeling, and others, the Deauville is currently vacant and neglected. There's still a chance to save the Deauville in time for the 60th anniversary in 2024. Gary McKechnie. We're still talking about them. We're still talking about a place that they stayed at, a hotel that they stayed at. You don't talk about that unless it's George Washington slept here, the Beatles slept here. That's how important this is, and that's why I'm really pleased uh, that the city of Miami is starting to take a role and starting to push this forward where this hotel can be saved. And once it's saved, I'm going to be paying for that historic marker that's going to go in front of it, and I'm going to book the Beatles tribute band that's going to be playing there on opening night. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook.
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.